This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics, including the federal government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Then, Sophie McNeil, an investigative journalist at Four Corners, as well as a former ABC foreign correspondent in the Middle East, joined me to talk about her new book, We Can't Say We Didn't Know. Sophie's book details the stories about people she encountered reporting from the front line in Afghanistan, Israel, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Turkey and Gaza. Then, finally, public health advocate and infectious disease expert Bill Botel from UNSW joined me to talk about the coronavirus pandemic both in Australia and the situation overseas. We discuss what governments, community groups and individuals need to do now to contain the spread of infection. I'm speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me now to talk about the latest in federal politics, which at the moment um, is mostly consuming government. The, the activity that's mostly consuming government is dealing with this pandemic, a global pandemic that has been uh, announced by the World Health Organization last week. Of course, we knew that we were in trouble before then, uh, but now the federal government is under a lot of um, fire and there's a lot of criticism and uh, issues running around and daily developments. So Ben will be joining me now. I welcome Ben over the phone. Hi there. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I'm not too bad. I'm just trying to triage life as I'm sure many others are. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Yes, it's a busy time and a little bit of a scary time for a lot of us. Mm. Um, but I, I guess um, we've all got to deal with it as best we can. Exactly. And uh, I think that's, that some of the reason why we're seeing this kind of panic and underlying anxiety in the community is that there's a lot of uh, confusion and some of the confusion is actually coming from the federal government and I guess a mixed a mixture of messages but also a uh, conflict between what they are saying and then what they are role modelling and doing. And one of the great examples of that is that uh, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, has tested positive for coronavirus. We found that out last week. Uh, coming back from America, he'd been meeting with officials over in Washington and uh, and so he came back and had meetings in Cabinet uh, and we then saw that um, the government themselves decided not to uh, socially isolate themselves or get tested. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. I mean, it's been it's been a rolling crisis now for at least a fortnight. Um, the the virus has really struck at the heart of the government, uh, infecting Peter Dutton himself, and then threatening the the health of the cabinet that Dutton has met with since coming back from that flight from the United States. Um, we now know that um, at least one other federal minister has also tested positive for coronavirus. So it's really serious at the highest levels, um, and the government is really struggling to, to keep up with the implications of uh, a global pandemic, not just in terms of health, obviously that's the most important aspect, but also the economic implications. We've seen uh, wild gyrations on uh, global stock markets, uh, including yesterday with one of the largest sell-offs in the Australian Stock Exchange in 30 years. 
So the economic damage for this is already extremely significant. And as you rightly point out, there's been a lot of mixed messages. The government's uh, communications on public health on this issue have been, well, let's say, um, confused. Uh, it's probably to put it the, the best way you can put it, um, and probably at worst chaotic. Uh, they haven't been following their own advice in terms of social distancing. And it's been a movable feast. You know, as recently as a week ago, uh, they were trying to downplay how serious, uh, you know, measures needed to be. Um, over the weekend, they decided to ban all public events of more than 500 people, which pretty much shut down Australia's arts and cultural industries overnight. Um, there's a, another hookup of the National Cabinet, which Morrison has formed, which is the Prime Minister and all of the state premiers uh, this afternoon, and they're going to discuss whether they should lower that number of people in public gatherings to 100, which would then have huge flow-on consequences to the hospitality and entertainment sectors. So uh, there seems to be uh, a very rapid uh you know, pace of events here, and I think it's overwhelming the government's already rather shaky ability to sort of um, handle crises. Yes, and uh, you mentioned there the arts sector. I think many might have been aware over the weekend of announcements like major institutions closing their doors for at least a month, including the National Gallery, um, the State Library of Victoria. There's pretty much every theatre company um, we've seen has had to cancel uh, their shows for the foreseeable future. So there's some major things happening. The Sydney Writers' Festival's just been cancelled. A number of events, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and this is all going to add up, isn't it? And particularly with the workers in this industry who are already in insecure, um, gig, often gig-based, freelance-based work. Yes, Amy, exactly right. It's been a devastating week for Australia's arts and cultural sector. Uh, you rightly point some, to some of those events that have been cancelled. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is the single largest arts event in the country. That's gone. The Sydney Writers Festival is the largest literary event in the country. That's gone. Dark Mofo has been cancelled. Many of the largest cultural institutions have closed their doors. Many of the smaller festivals and arts organisations are already shutting down, are in big trouble. So there's huge economic impacts here. Of course, you're right to point to some of the issues with um, precarious workforces, a lot of people who work casually or who are sole traders working from job to job. uh, They're profoundly affected by this, and where they don't have savings to fall back on, they're going to be in real trouble very soon. The government announced a $17.6 billion stimulus package late last week. I mean, that just shows you how quickly events are moving, that we sort of have already uh, moved on from that huge stimulus package, the largest since the Rudd stimulus of 2008, Um, and already the government's talking about the need potentially for a second stimulus package. So that's how serious the economic damage is. Um, Just to give you another example, the Reserve Bank yesterday announced that they would be moving to buy Australian government bonds, which is the, in effect, quantitative easing for Australia. So the economic implications of this pandemic are profound. It's both a supply and a demand shock, as the economists say. So not only are there demand issues in the sense that ordinary people aren't going out and spending for obvious reasons, they're pretty worried, they're staying home, but also there's a supply shock because whole sectors of the economy, like the arts and culture, but also other industries, are just shutting down. They're not able to get their products to market, to the shelves. So it's a huge impact on the economy.
Yes, and another area that's seeing a major impact is uh, the education sector and there's still a great deal of confusion there and a lot of um, differing approaches from various schools and uh, universities at the moment and we have seen examples where coronavirus, um, we have seen positive cases of coronavirus in a university community um, and therefore you know, some classes have still gone on a day later um, we've only overnight seen that uh, La Trobe University and Monash University are going to move their classes online and stop uh, in-person teaching. So where are we at in terms of that approach of, of not only just uh, primary and high schools and their approach, which we've seen a difference in the public versus private sector, and then, of course, the university sector? Well, I think it mirrors the general confusion over the policy responses to this pandemic. So higher education has been one of the hardest-hit industries already, obviously, with its huge reliance of overseas students um, have already been affected by the travel bans. And the universities made massive efforts to uh, get some of those students back into the country to start semesters. In many cases, they delayed semesters for a couple of weeks to try and get students in and teaching. And now it looks like they're going to have to move all of their classes online. So it's a very significant uh, disruption in the higher education sector. At this stage, all the schools are staying in and staying open. But, of course, many experts think that that's untenable in the medium term, that eventually, like so many countries overseas, Australia will have to move to close our schools. And, of course, that will cause further disruptions for people who will now have to stay home and look after their children. Uh, and, again, there's a, a lot of confusion here about exactly when that decision will be made to close the schools, uh, at what stage schools will have to close, um, and what the implications are for the progression of the pandemic. You know, I think it's worth going back to the actual statistics on infections and deaths in Australia. At the moment, we still only have around 300 cases of COVID-19 in Australia, um, and there's only been six deaths so far. But the concerning thing is that there seems to be an exponential increase in the number of cases that are being diagnosed, and we seem to be on a upward sloping curve, a lot like some of those countries overseas that are such a concern, like Italy and Spain and the United States. So the question now is whether Australia can take enough public health measures fast enough to flatten the curve, as people are saying, that is in order to try and reduce the rate of infection so that our hospitals are not overwhelmed with a huge wave of very sick people who require critical intensive care. And I think that's, what's, that's what we're going to discover over the next fortnight or so, because we are roughly where some of those European countries were a fortnight ago. And so in the coming days, if we start to see a huge spike in the number of cases being diagnosed in Australia, then we'll know that we're in as much trouble as Italy. Hopefully we're not, but really only time will tell. Yes, well, the government said that they expect there will be a 1,000 uh, positive cases of coronavirus by the end of this week, which is obviously based on modelling and we won't know until that time. Uh, but we have known from doctors and scientists that there is a delay in uh, the cases that 
come about based on whatever policy actions you take. So if we take action today and reduce exposure and uh, enforce more social isolation, the effects, positive or negative, of that will be delayed and we will only know the effect of that for in a week or two. So it's kind of um, interesting to see what might happen in the next week or two because that will tell us whether we have acted fast enough in some of these uh, more extreme measures that other countries have been taking that uh, a number of health experts have said are important to take. It's often, as they say, better to take action that looks like an overreaction rather than at a later date an underreaction. Yeah, that's right, Amy. And I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist, so I'll defer to the experts. And there is a lively debate, I'd argue, in the expert community about exactly how strict and how early the Australian measures need to be. Uh, you've got Bill Bartell on the radio later th- this morning, so uh, maybe you can ask him some of these questions. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the government has been complacent to some degree. They moved early with travel bans from China, but then I think they made a major mistake by not making travel bans from Europe and the United States. And clearly there have been a number of cases from particularly the US in recent days. Um, And the worry there is that that is seeding community transmission in Australia and that there are, you know, numbers of cases of people who have no symptoms but who are walking around with coronavirus affecting other people right now. That's the concern. We don't know until we ramp up the testing. One area where Australia does seem to have done quite well is that we have had a pretty aggressive testing regime, particularly in New South Wales, so that's a positive. Uh, it's not like in the United States where they've simply failed to test almost altogether. Uh, but I think there's no doubt that with cases still on the increase and deaths still on the increase, Australia is in for a pretty, pretty serious couple of weeks. Yes, and if we look at the policy response by the Morrison government uh, only in the last couple of days, we saw them follow the lead of New Zealand in suggesting that any international traveller, actually mandating any international traveller coming into Australia must uh, self-isolate entirely for 14 days. Um, Now, this is something that is quite difficult to enforce, and of course, some people will be very conscientious and do that, but we have seen reports of others saying that they didn't intend to follow the orders. Um, And that is a a different measure from a total travel ban, of course. And the reason why New Zealand took that um, approach was so that they could decide uh, where people could come from in Italy, for example, because at the time not all of people were affected uh, in Italy and the northern Italy was uh, more affected. So what are your thoughts on the Morrison government's approach to border control and to uh, flights coming in and out? Because we've just seen overnight Germany has decided to close its borders entirely. Look, one of the things I'd say is that uh, border control is generally a pretty poor way of trying to manage these issues. Uh, Borders are not particularly good at stopping flows of people, uh, despite what the Morrison government has long argued. And uh, the number one example there is Peter Dutton himself. Uh, who, of course, would not have ever been subject to any travel restrictions, being a federal cabinet minister, but has managed to get himself infected on his visits to the United States. So borders are always porous. Uh, I think you've got to take other public health measures. That's super important. Um, It's got to be testing. There's got to be contact tracing. There's got to be aggressive public health measures like social distancing 
and that's the phase we're in already. I mean, I think uh, coronavirus is most certainly uh, circulating in the Australian community right now. So travel bans, even if they're implemented in a draconian way right now, wouldn't be the solution. But I think there's another issue here, which is communication, and there I think the federal government has struggled. Uh, I think the chief medical officer, Brennan Murphy, while he has been frequently in the media, he's often been quite confusing in his messages, and the government failed to get a proper public health advertising campaign up and running until just a couple of days ago, despite having months to prepare for this. And I think that's a real problem, you know. Um, I I was out on Saturday night um, catching up with a friend of mine. Uh, The bars were full and packed all up and down High Street in Northcote and Thornbury. You know, um, people are still out and about. Um, Many schools, all the schools are open, obviously. You know, trams are still packed, trains are still packed. So, we're not where we need to be in terms of social distancing and in taking measures to halt the spread of the infection. And I think that's a real concern at this stage of the pandemic. Yes, and that probably leads to one of the other announcements that people were confused by, which was the announcement on uh, Friday about the reduction in crowd sizes of 500 in non-essential gatherings that were basically static, so when we're sitting or standing in one place for a long period of time. And uh, the announcement was that it would come into effect on Monday and there was a great deal of confusion as to why it could be delayed and the weekend was a free-for-all. And there was concern around that with NRL games playing and other major events that we saw go ahead, but then, of course, the Grand Prix being cancelled. What are your thoughts on the mixed messaging and mixed behaviour behaviour, role modelling from the government on this angle? Well, I think one of the things that the government has attempted to do, and Brendan Murphy himself has said this, is they've tried to enact a proportionate response is the word they've used, proportionate. So they haven't tried to shut down everything immediately all at once. They've tried to sort of move in a graded way, um, slowly and surely, to try and and sort of... um, take measures as they deem appropriate. And I think what that has meant is there's been a lot of confusion over some of these kind of edge categories. You know, like, so, for example, universities being exempted from these uh, restrictions, despite the fact that universities obviously have very large numbers of people all in one place. Uh, Another good example is public transport. Now, people need to Mm. get around on public transport, obviously, but if you're crammed into a tram or a train carriage with 200 other people in a small space for 45 minutes on the way into the city, that's a highly infectious situation. So I think uh, we're likely to see more of these restrictions enacted in coming days, and I think the government is playing catch-up to some degree. Yes, and let's look at some of the most vulnerable in society and how they're being affected by government policy. Uh, We did see, as you've referenced there, the $17.6 billion stimulus package, and that uh, brought out or has been slated to bring payments to people who are currently receiving a government uh, payment, and that's looking at pensioners. It's also looking at people um, on Newstart and 
A lot of uh, people have suggested this is not enough to stimulate the economy, that a number of people will uh, seek to save a significant proportion of that amount given the uncertainty uh, in our economy. What are some of the um, areas of the stimulus package that maybe aren't reaching the people that needs to receive these funds and where might a second stimulus package look to? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say about the stimulus is it's probably not big enough. Even though $17.6 billion sounds like a lot of money, and it is, Australia has a $2 trillion economy. So $17.6 billion, it's only around 1.2% of GDP. Now, depending on how bad you think this slump is already, we could already be losing 2 3 4% of GDP in a single quarter. Uh, when you think about all the places that are shutting down, businesses shutting down, industries actually shutting down, supply chains halting, uh, it's possible that the, the downturn could be extremely deep. So is 1.2% enough? That's the first concern. Secondly, is it targeted enough? Where is it going? So there have been $750 payments promised to people on welfare. That includes pensioners and New Start recipients. That's positive. That's welcome. I think everyone would applaud that measure. The rest of the stimulus, though, is targeted to business and particularly incorporated businesses. So small to medium businesses can get some uh, interest-free loans. They can get some withholding tax relief, and they also get an investment write-off. But there's no support for ordinary workers there. So there's no stimulus package like we saw in the Kevin Rudd years where ordinary people are getting money. Uh, there's no support for casual workers who, of course, are going to be some of the hardest hit by, these, by this downturn, particularly those that need to take isolation leave. Um, and many businesses are still not giving casual workers isolation leave. Um, and then, of course, there are sole traders. So small businesses, people who are ABN holders who are not incorporated businesses, they don't get any stimulus at all from this package. So there's a real concern about whether the money's going to the most vulnerable and to the parts of the economy that need it the most. Indeed, and there has been a lot of um, widespread acceptance in the last day or so that the Australian economy will go into recession, and um, that's from prominent economists who've been speaking on radio and others uh, talking about the situation we find ourselves in. And some people have suggested uh, that perhaps given that uh, we need dis people uh, who absolutely need to spend money um, to do so, that now would be the ideal time to actually increase New Start and therefore should people actually become employed and lose their jobs uh, due to this uh, horrible pandemic that they, um, if they went on New Start, would be more likely to be able to uh, survive and pay their pre-existing financial commitments. Yeah, well, I think this pandemic really highlights just how threadbare Australia's social safety net has become. I think it's an open secret. I mean, it's a widely accepted truth that New Start is simply not enough money for an ordinary person to survive upon in 2020. Uh, no one in an Australian capital city can afford to pay rent on New Start. So that tells you just how, um, how um, I guess, uh, low, if you like, how... Um, it, insubstantial our social safety net is um, and I think I hope I hope that this pandemic also leads to a wider discussion about the need for 
a better structure to our labour markets. Uh, COVID-19 has shown just how many Australian workers are insecure, simply do not have secure employment with things like sick leave. They're casuals or they're sole traders, as I mentioned. They don't have regular employment at all. Um, these people are going to really struggle in the current environment and there's still very little recognition from the Morrison government that the that what we need to do is to actually increase the spending power of this insecure aspect of our workforce. Indeed, and people have highlighted the fact that uh, about 60% of workers are in full or part-time ongoing employment. And then, then, of course, the rest of the economy, around 3 to 4 million workers, are casuals or short-term contracts, independent contractors, or part of a labour hire arrangement. So that is a huge proportion of Australia's population. Um, in terms of the messaging and the approach at these kind of supposedly informative press conferences we're seeing the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer provide on a very regular basis, at the last one we saw Scott Morrison out pointing to graphs and showing a curve and trying to explain things to people. Um, but people have remarked that the way that the Prime Minister is explaining the situation and outlining the steps the government is taking has not been clear and to the point. What, what are your thoughts and interpretations of um, the communications approach from uh, front bench government ministers and the Prime Minister in trying to explain and allay concerns of the general public? They've been poor, Amy. They've been below grade, I think. They've been, they haven't been good enough. Um, and, and this points to a bigger problem with the Morrison government, which is that it already had a big def, deficit of trust, okay? People don't trust the Morrison government. They don't trust federal politicians in general. And it's precisely at the time when we actually need to listen to the experts, where we need all the trust we can get in our society when we're facing such a devastating crisis. And I think this is really, this is actually the coalition's fault. They've, they've poisoned the well, you know, years and years of party political partisan point scoring, particularly from the coalition, has led to a precipitate decline in trust in federal institutions. Now, I'll just give you one good example. Okay, for 10 years, Scott Morrison himself, as well as other coalition leaders, have criticised Labor's stimulus of 2008. For 10 years, for a decade, they refused to accept that the Kevin Rudd-Wayne-Swan stimulus of 2008 was successful in helping save the economy. Now they're having to turn around and do a stimulus package. The very people who told us that this was reckless spending, that it was unnecessary uh, and that it was wasteful and corrupt. So this is the kind of problem that they face. They have to turn on a dime and now ask for the trust of Australians, despite undermining the trust of Australians in government for years. That's an excellent point and people have said that uh, there has been this ongoing fixation with a surplus with, as many might remember, uh, the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg saying that they were back in the black uh, prematurely 
and uh, projecting that they would be back in the plaque um, this year, which of course is now not going to be happening. Uh, but obviously a lot of people have stated that even prior to the coronavirus, it was actually uh, becoming less and less likely that Australia would be looking at a, a surplus or even a, a moderately good surplus. So um, there is questions around the coalition's economic management uh, to begin with anyway. Um, one of the issues... Well, well, it's been- it's bigger than that, Amy, because let's remember that the surplus itself is not a proxy for economic management. What what matters in the economy is, do people have a job? Uh, do, is our economy able to provide the goods and services that ordinary people need to live their lives, like housing, like food? Uh, and these are the kind of things that we should measure economic management by a government on, not whether the federal budget is in surplus or deficit. And I think that's a, that, that's another aspect of this trust deficit, because for years and years and years, the coalition told us that what mattered was whether the government had a surplus or not. Now, that's just not true. Actually, what matters, and we're seeing this with this crisis, is can we look after the people who we really need to in our society? And judging by that, we need to have a big deficit at the moment, because we need the government to take up the spending that ordinary people no longer are able to. Yes, well, I was going to just also reference the bushfires, which uh, was an impact and has an ongoing impact on Australia's economy because so many people lost their homes and also uh, lost a lot of business um, from the lack of tourism. Now we're seeing uh, people obviously being encouraged to travel less, if at all. And of course, domestically, there is an ability to travel, but a lot of people are now reducing their travel and there is an absolute um, recommendation against travelling to remote uh, areas where Indigenous people are um, based over in NT and WA to ensure that they aren't put at risk. Um, So we're seeing that impact. And I think I think a lot of people might be concerned about the fact that we now um, are, are less able to support those who had suffered from the impacts of the bushfires. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just a, a crisis after a, a crisis. Uh, so you're seeing devastating impacts on the tourism sector, obviously, from this, from this virus. Um, inbound tourism has pretty much stopped. Uh, people are really no longer flying to Australia for holidays. Um, and a lot of domestic tourism is now going to stop too as we implement social distancing. And, of course, many of these tourism businesses were not recovered from the bushfires. Uh, so, yeah, it, it gets worse and worse the, the more you think about it. Um, I think I think a lot of our medium-sized businesses are going to be in real trouble in coming months, um, and then probably some big ones too. I think Virgin, the airline, is going to be in real trouble. Um, I think anyone exposed to the consumer side of the economy is really going to do it tough. Ben, um, in terms of what can be done and what areas the government should look at um, without giving them a a roadmap in detail, but what are some of the broad areas that um, the government could be looking at policy-wise in this next week? More stimulus. I think the government itself admits there's going to have to be a second stimulus package and that's got to be targeted this time around to ordinary consumers. So I think we will see some Kevin Rudd-style checks mailed out to people maybe some money deposited into your account uh, in order to keep people spending. Uh, I think that's vital. 
Um, and I also think that the government will announce a range of infrastructure packages. I think that's also sensible too. But of course, the problem with infrastructure is it takes a while to ramp up. You can't just start building stuff tomorrow. Um, there's also going to have to be some serious work done on financial stability. So we're already seeing the, the Reserve Bank step into markets and guarantee loans, particularly for the big banks. Uh, as this financial crisis develops, of course, um, I think we're going to see more instability and we're going to have to see the government backstop deposits, perhaps, um, like we saw in the global financial crisis. So I, I think we're, we're just at the beginning of this, Amy. I, I think this is going to roll on on for weeks and months, um, and we're, we're really only at the beginning of seeing what the disruption of COVID-19 will mean for Australian society. Yes, it might lead to some um, significant changes to the economy going forward and even to how we do business and how we uh, work. And arguably that's an opportunity for us to do these things better. There are many aspects of our economy, the way it's currently structured, that simply don't work for ordinary people. I would argue our housing market is a really good example of that, whereby uh, housing is very unaffordable, particularly for low- and middle-income Australians and capital cities. That's an opportunity where we could do better, you know. There's an opportunity for the government to actually invest in big new housing building programs to try and build more affordable housing. Another option is renewable energy. We need more renewable energy if we're going to meet our Paris emissions reductions targets. Of course, the government's not that keen on those, but the renewable energy sector is an obvious area where the government could stimulate. Uh, and there's plenty of projects there that are ready to go uh, if the government was prepared to backstop them or invest in them or guarantee loans. So that's just a couple of areas where the government could look at using its power, using its spending ability to actually create a better economy going forward. But whether the Morrison government is intellectually flexible enough to look at those opportunities, I think only time will tell. Yes, there'll be a lot of uh, developments over the next week, no doubt, and it'll be interesting to see how everything um, develops and unfolds. Thank you, Ben, so much for taking the time to chat with us today and uh, hope that things don't go too crazy for you and for everyone listening. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Stay safe and everybody stay home, wash your hands and keep that 1.5 metres. Exactly. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Sophie McNeil. Sophie is an investigative journalist for Four Corners and she's also a former foreign correspondent for the ABC in the Middle East. Sophie joined me to talk about her book, We Can't Say We Didn't Know. Sophie's book details the stories she encountered reporting from the front line in conflicts in Afghanistan, Israel, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Turkey and Gaza, among many others. So I'm really excited that I get to speak with Sophie and she's joining me now via Skype and I do hope this is all working well. So uh, I welcome Sophie now and thank you very much for joining us today. Hi there. 
Thanks for having me, Aim. It's great to have you on the show. And um, I've got to say, I think a lot of people are very much aware of the important work that Four Corners does um, and that investigative journalism is becoming more and more difficult to um, fund and to make sure that it is um, being able to be done in a robust and fearless way. And of course, we've seen um, the AFP raids on the ABC last year and concerns around the ability of journalists to be be able to go out and do the kinds of work that you do and your colleagues do and also, of course, um, foreign correspondents to do what they do. I was really interested in the start of your book and um, – sorry, I've got a bit of asthma, so I'm a little bit croaky <clears> – <throat> I was interested in the start of your book when you were talking about your initial exposure to some of these kind of human rights issues that are often born out of conflict and you raise uh, one of the examples being East Timor. Could you share with us your kind of formative years and what you write in the book about um, how these kind of conflicts close to us uh, shaped you and drove you to produce journalism yourself? Sure. I mean, I was a teenager growing up in Perth and, um, you know, pretty isolated place. I'd never heard of Timor and I just read this book when I was a year 10 student, um, Hidden Agendas by John Pilger, that really spoke about the horrors of that occupation, you know, a third of the population killed, um, torture, things that had happened while the Australian government looked the other way. And I was just outraged, you know, here I was, was this this kid who thought that, you know, I was in the extension social sciences class and I thought that this is something they should have taught me at school. Um, and I was so angry that, that I didn't know about it. And so after I read that book, I got involved in volunteering with these Timorese refugees and actually went up there a few times and made kind of like my own little, you know, home <laughs> documentaries. That's how I got into journalism. Um, but I think it just convinced me of the power of reporting because, you know, here um, was a, a situation where reporters snuck in people like Max Stahl, John Martinkus did amazing work documenting what happened on the ground. The world saw it. And, you know, this was a, a wonderful way that, that proved how the international community can come together and do good. Um, we saw the, the vote and we saw, um, uh, you know, how the East Timorese people achieved their freedom. So it gave me a lot of hope. It was a great way to get involved in international affairs and journalism. But in the book, I grapple with the idea that, you know, the world has changed. Now our excuses have run out. Um, we can't say anymore that we didn't, didn't know. Syria is the most meticulously documented war in history, and yet we have, you know, not taken any action in, in that conflict to prevent the suffering of those people the world has just ignored their plight so this is what I grapple with and, and ask like what's changed now um in the last decade in the Middle East what 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 has happened there has created these terrifying precedents what does it mean for us as a society Yes, and I think um, a lot of people would see the Middle East as being very uh, geographically far away, and yet a lot of the issues that uh, people over in different countries in the Middle East face have become very much issues for us as well to be able to um, support them if they are here to seek refuge. And of course, we've seen ongoing policies from both Labor and Liberal governments um, that have certainly uh, been dire for a lot of refugees 
refugees who have um, sought asylum over in Australia and have often had to go to another country such as Indonesia um, to try and get their applications processed by the UNHCR. So there was a lot of, um, I guess, migration issues from all the conflict happening in the Middle East. What's your sense of Australia and the way that we perceive some of the issues that you've been seeing firsthand uh, over in the Middle East and I guess whether you see there's a bit of a disconnect. Yeah, I think we 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 believe that what happens over there won't affect us here. And, you know, we all think it's terrible what's going on in Syria and Yemen and Gaza. We feel sympathy. But ultimately, you know, we don't actually do anything about it because we think it won't affect us. So what my book is about is about... Um, what happens when all the rules are broken? You know, what happens in this age of impunity where leaders can commit, you know, atrocities um, with no deterrence and we really just um, allow, you know, mass slaughter to happen and we're indifferent to it? Um, that that's, that's what my book examines. And, and I think that people don't realise that when, when you have that undermining of the international system, when there is no enforcement, enforcement of, you know, the rules in a very simple way of explaining kind of international law and the rules of war, um, then that will come back and affect us. You can see it. It's beginning to seep into our system. You know, there's impunity now in our politics too. Um, There is also uh, a real struggle for us when we try and talk to leaders in our region and, you know, turn to Beijing and say, you can't lock up a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, which is described by the UN as the worst human rights abuses of our current times. Um, But then, you know, our high moral ground has disappeared because we haven't upheld international law or supported the UN in other circumstances. So because I covered the whole region, I could see the double standards and the hypocrisy. We would, you know, call out President Assad when he starved his own people in Syria, but we don't call out the Saudis when they did it to the people of Yemen. You know, 80,000 children starved to death there in the last few years. We saw it, you know, we filmed it and we put it on the ABC prime time foreign correspondent, Monday night, kids in front of us starving to death. And then four months later, Defence Industries Minister Christopher Pine went to Riyadh to try and sell the the Saudis uh, Australian defence products, including weapons. So um, that's what the book is about. But ultimately, you know, it's a tribute. It's a tribute to amazing, courageous, brave people, the people who who suffer when all the law, all the rules and the laws are broken and it's really personal story so it's it's not a book of for experts or for international relations kind of nerds it, it's it's really just people's stories but i just put it into this context so you can see how it fits into all of that stuff yeah so i think these stories that you've put into the book probably are a really great way for people to start to relate and understand the gravity of the situation in these uh, areas including yemen because when um, they hear statistics in a kind of broad brushstroke, um, perhaps that they're not understanding the severity and the urgency of the conflict and the issues. Um, One of your chapters is on the people of Yemen, which you describe and you have mentioned it it has been described um, as the hidden or forgotten war, uh, certainly in comparison with other conflicts in Syria and Iraq. And I think that um, a a number of people may be watching um, some of the more world-based news, including the ABC and SBS, would have seen the stories about the famine in Yemen and how it has impacted on children, as you've mentioned there, and it still is ongoing um, as a major issue. But 
perhaps um, we don't understand what life is like and just the kind of severity and impact that this has in a country of 29 million people um, and and with a neighbour of Saudi Arabia, which you mentioned, um, and their role as well. Could you share with us um, some of the stories from Yemen that you write about in this book that you feel um, has, I guess, highlighted the issue for you? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we struggled for ages to get get in there. Um, the the news that was coming out of Yemen was was really hard to to get. Um, Saudi went to great lengths to stop reporters getting into that country, and it was only after several months we finally got visas and we went for um, like twelve days on the ground before we were kicked out by the uh, Houthi rebels, who were also um, uh, not nice people. <laughs> they, uh, you know, had a mind to follow us the whole time. They used child soldiers. So uh, the, the people of Yemen are really trapped at the moment between the Houthi rebels and the Saudi-led coalition. But, you know, the Saudi-led coalition, they have the air power. So that's why the vast majority of civilian deaths in Yemen are, are caused um, by those airstrikes. Uh, and so, you know, we travelled around the country as much as we could. And one particular place we went to was a town called Sanabani. And we met a, a beautiful man there called Mohammed, whose his cousins had a wedding um, about seven months before we got there. And there was dozens and dozens of dozens, dozens of families gathered. And, you know, from kilometres above in the sky, the Saudis dropped a bomb straight on this wedding, you know. And as Mohammed said, they turned it into a funeral. And... Um, you know, he lost his, his parents, he lost his five-year-old daughter. And, you know, what we know about that conflict is that there were Western advisors working in Riyadh um, training the Saudis on how to better pick targets in that war. Um, so there was concern behind the scenes with the Americans and the Brits at how the Saudis were carrying out this war because it's been described as a training ground. You know, the Saudis haven't carried out a war before like this. And so the new Crown Prince, MBS, it was his kind of idea, his plan, Um to, to take on this conflict in Yemen and, you know, no prize winning president, Nobel, um, Barack Obama is the one who gave MBS the green light to go ahead and start this bombing campaign that continues today. Um, so, you know, Mohammed knew about the Western involvement and he was kind of distraught to think that, that, you know, who was in that targeting room when they decided to bomb that wedding, when they decided to bomb his house. So that's just one of the, the stories we go there, you know, we really investigate that incident. Um, but, there's just so many brave people in the book. Um, Muhammad's one of them. Another gorgeous man is called Hisham. He's an outspoken um, analyst, journalist in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, dad of two, who, you know, really paid the price for, for speaking out and standing up. Um, and you hear his story. So all throughout the book is the stories of people who decided they wanted to be on the right side of history. They risked everything to stand up um, for what they believed in, whether it's Syria, um, uh, Yemen, um, there's just amazingly brave individuals, people like Rahaf, a young Saudi woman who I spent time with and uh, got trapped in a hotel room with, which is a very long story in the last chapter in the book. Um, but I, what they all display is tremendous courage, and I think that's what we can learn from them. I think we need to show more courage in our everyday lives to stand up for what we believe in and try and make the world a better place. Yes, and um, you highlight there one of the very interesting facts which shows the scale of the Western involvement in these conflicts, that Saudi Arabia was not just using old weapons that they had stockpiled, but they were actually in 2015 uh, the third largest military spender in the world after the US and China spending 
$87 billion US dollars on arms and aircraft. That seems like a very large amount of money to be spending on military um, to be then using against your neighbour. Um, for those who aren't kind of understanding the intimate political issues, what have the Saudi motivations been in targeting uh, places like Yemen? Yeah, so with with that conflict, um, the the again it reflects kind of um, the the regional the wider regional struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So the rebels that took over the north of Yemen are Iranian backed, and so when when they took over control, um, an area that has a population of twenty million people, um, the most populous parts of Yemen, you know Saudi. Um, you know, this was like their worst nightmare to have these Iranian-aligned rebels on their border controlling this territory. So, um, and you can see these proxy wars in the chapters I talk about Syria, you know, the horrific um, cost of Russia's involvement and the Iranian-backed rebels that supported President Bashar al-Assad, the dictator there. So what all the chapters have in common is that the people are the one who ones who are suffering um, and that the civilians, there's no one looking out for them. And that what we've seen in the past decade in the Middle East is this, this horrific undermining of international law, you know, hospitals targeted, civilian infrastructure targeted, aid workers targeted, doctors targeted. Um, in Syria, in Yemen, um, uh, there's a chapter where I investigate coalition airstrikes in uh, Raqqa and Mosul, you know, horrendous suffering for civilians. Not only were they dealing with life living under the ISIS jihadists, which was, you know, like unbearable, but then they, they lived in utter fear of coalition airstrikes and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International document how they they accuse the coalition of not taking enough care to save civilian lives when they carried out those bombing campaigns. So, um you know, I investigate all all sides, you know, alleged uh, breaking of international law of war crimes by the Israeli government, you know, by Bashar al-Assad, by the Saudis, by the Houthi rebels, um, by the US-led coalition in Iraq. All what, what they all have in common is that no one is following these so-called rules, you know, that we set up, you know, this idea of responsibility to protect civilians just doesn't exist on the ground. It's just a theory. And, and we need to urgently call for change. And, and, you know, the book is a call to arms to ask you, what are you doing to try and make sure that this isn't the world that, you know, we're not just going to kind of accept that this is the planet we want to have. Um, so I, I, there's the last chapter I really talk about possible solutions and what we could do to try and, and um, see an end to this age of impunity. Indeed. And I think um, maybe perhaps the reason why some people might think it's beyond their control or that it is um, the, the role of someone else is that there is this uh, broader understanding from people that there is an international court of justice, um, the Hague, that of course would hold these countries to account when they commit crimes against humanity and various war atrocities and that they of course should step in. And there are so many reasons why that does not occur, some of which is that the countries don't sign up to the rules uh, that the UN has specified. Um, but what's your thoughts around the role of uh, international bodies that we, I guess, expect to be the, the broader police of these um, countries and these conflicts? Well, look, I mean, it's really interesting where you, you look at um, 
a country like Australia, we are in an excellent position to try and lead on these issues. You know, we are a, a middle power that has a very high standard of living. Not everyone in this country has um, is doing okay, but vast majority of people do have a very high standard of living. And, you know, we have had 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. Yes, things are looking terrible now um, with the coronavirus, but um, we are in a position to lead and we, we don't. We don't on these issues. And, and that's what I talk about in the book. You know, we had our Prime Minister Scott Morrison talk about negative globalism last October. He gave this address and he really attacked the UN system. Um, but then at the same time, we want to turn around and we want to criticise Beijing for the horror that they are carrying out in Xinjiang. You know, this is a story I actually investigated for Four Corners last year, where you see a million Uyghur people, the largest internment of people on the basis of religion since the Holocaust, locked up in North China. And so we want to turn around and say to Beijing, you can't do that. But the problem is, is that at the same time, we're continually undermining the UN system, undermining these rules. And this is it. You can't just pick and choose when you want them to apply. Um, and so this is where I really think we need to lead. We need to, you know, ask our politicians um, to, uh, that we need to tell them we care about this. I mean, you know, more people protested in Sydney about what time pubs closed than they did about anything to do with Syria or Yemen or Gaza in the last 10 years. So I want us all to, um, you know, look at our lives and think, well, what can I do to try and make the world a better place? Because um, the book is full of people who can show you the power of just one person, you know, what one person can achieve. And I think that we forget, um, uh, you know, what is possible. You know, we, it, it's in the, the interest of our leaders for us to feel hopeless and helpless, right? And then they can keep con continuing as normal. But, you know, I don't accept that. Yes, well, we've seen with climate change that public pressure can start to build momentum and create change, even if it is um, slow and it needs to build and build on a global scale, but it can be done. And certainly uh, public activism is very much an effective tool in many of these areas. Um, you write in your conclusion and what you've just referenced there is that one of the most heartbreaking stories you did investigate um, was the CCP, Chinese uh, Communist Party's um, brutal treatment of the Muslim Uyghur people in Xinjiang. And uh, we have seen a kind of escalation and a slow deterioration of human rights in some of these areas and also a targeting of some of the other minorities, including the Hui people. Um, when you talk about in the conclusion the Canberra's approach to China and their, um, I guess, reticence to hold them to account and China's taking advantage of that reticence and that um, often chaotic nature of um, the UN and, the, and global diplomacy. What do you think are some of those solutions when we are so globalised and so interconnected and reliant upon other countries? And that seems to be a reason um, for governments in their mind to take uh, less forthright action against human rights abuses. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, the, the issue, as I raise in the book, is talking about the, the double standards and how we need to actually apply these rules um, across the board, that we can't be selective about it. And um, 
I, I, I mean, I got to the point in the Middle East where there was just not, no politicians here to even call to get comment on an issue because people wasn't even raised in Parliament. You know, we need to let our leaders know, our local members know, that we care about these issues, that we want them to do something, that we want them to act. Um, because as we can see today with the coronavirus crisis, that, you know, the world is so interconnected. And if you continue to let these, these you know, um, mass atrocities and, and uh, you know, horrific human rights abuses that we've seen in the past decade in the Middle East carry on, with no deterrence, then, then it does affect us. They, 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 it leads to a global unraveling, you know, of the world order, of of a system that deals with how these rules um, can need to be enforced. So, um, I think the main thing that I want people to take take away from the book is this idea that um, you can change. You know, there are amazing examples of people who have uh, had a huge amount of of um, success enacting change and creating difference because, you know, they did stand up, they did risk everything to to um, stand up for what they believed in. You know, the, the last chapter is about Rahaf, a, a Saudi woman who, you know, through her amazing determination and courage, she lifted the lid on the terrible gender apartheid system in Saudi Arabia. And um, again, the, the power of one person. I talk about lawyers in the UK who so alarmed that they're you their government's massive arms sales to Saudi Arabia, they filed a case, you know, in the UK um, Supreme Court and they managed to get a temporary ban on their government selling weapons to the Saudis. I mean, this is it. You you, you can't just give up, feel hopeless. Um, you know, yes, how can you individually sitting in your home in, in, in Melbourne, you know, get, get the UN to uphold the rules of war? Well, yes, that's really hard. But there is amazing examples of little changes that then lead to broader change, you know. Um, so I think it's, it's something that we all need to, to look at our lives and think, well, how can I, in a small way, how can I um, work towards making this world a better place? That's what the book's about. And it is really a very compelling story because of the different stories you've put into this book. Um, one which you had very close and uh, prominent involvement with was uh, Rahaf, which is covered in um, the final chapter of stories. And it certainly did make Australian and global headlines last January in 2019. Um, could you share with us how you came to be, uh, I guess, involved intimately in the reporting of this story and getting Rahaf's situation out to the rest of the world? Sure. I mean, I saw Rahaf on Twitter saying, you know, I'm stuck at Bangkok Airport. I'm a um, young Saudi woman fleeing um, domestic abuse at home. I want my freedom, you know. Um, Saudi women aren't allowed to travel without the permission of their male guardians. And so uh, she fled. Her family was on holiday in Kuwait. And she got to Bangkok and she was on her way to try and claim asylum in Australia, but she was stopped. You know, Saudi officials intercepted her, took her passport, and she was locked up in this hotel room. And they said she was going to be put on this flight tomorrow, forcibly deported. I saw that tweet and it reminded me of an earlier case of a young woman called Dina Ali, who was in exactly the same position as Rahaf. She'd been at Manila Airport in 2017. And unfortunately, what happened to Dina is that her family flew in. Um, they were given access to her. They taped up her arms, her legs, her mouth, and they forced Dina Ali onto a plane screaming. And she hasn't been heard of publicly since. And so when I heard 
Rahaf's story on Twitter, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is going to be another Dina Ali. And I decided to fly to Bangkok because I wanted to be there and document what they were going to do to Rahaf because we didn't have any good video of what happened to Dina Ali. You know, we had witness accounts, Human Rights Watch investigated it, security guards at the airport, but we didn't have any video to show, you know, the horror of what this regime is capable of doing. Um, so that was the plan and then I got there and I ended up getting <laughs> stuck in the hotel room with Rahaf and you know thank god she wasn't forced back onto that plane because she won you know she managed to get the world's attention and um yeah it was an amazing story and whenever I kind of you know get a bit down and I think of Rahaf and I think of how that was such a, a success for her and for the 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 that cause. Um, same thing, you know, I talk in the last chapter about the people of Hong Kong. I went, I was there last year for Four Corners and I, I looked to them for inspiration. You know, people who, like, it's it's just like the, the most David Goliath struggle you can imagine um, when you think of standing up to Beijing. But they're, they're amazingly brave, you know, and they know that if they don't, um, if they don't uh, stand up for what they believe in, then, you know, they're their life under an authoritarian regime in the years to come is is not what they want, and so they are taking to the streets and they're and they're trying to to change. You know, trying to take control of their futures and demand freedom, demand democracy. So you know, it's not all doom and gloom out there. There there are definitely things to look forward to and give you hope, and that's that's all in there too. Mm. And one of the hopeful and brave women that I came across about a year ago um, was Princess Sheikha Latifah, who is um, about 33 years of age. She's the daughter of um, Dubai's ruler. Um, and she is mentioned in your book um, on you know four or five pages and her story is so compelling and watching her YouTube video that she posted up um, was just really gripping and moving and also inspiring to see her bravery and her, um, I guess, stoicism in the face of um, some really intense and crazy things happening over there. Could you share with us that um, situation and I think it's just so um, interesting also because it's still an ongoing issue and we're not sure um, what has happened to Princess Latifah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a chapter about the Emirates, about the UAE. This is a country that Australia has really close relations with. I mean, the the Crown Prince of Dubai, the ruler of Dubai, one of the largest Emirates, there's, there's several of them and they're all ruled by these by these royal families, um, there's, you know, no opposition allowed, no dissidents allowed. You know, you speak out, you go straight to jail. That's what happens in the UAE. Um, but, you know, Sheikh Mohammed, the leader of Dubai, you know, he won the Melbourne Cup the year before last. You know, he's warmly welcomed into Australia. And I think this is shameful, you know. Um, and his daughter, Latifa, tried to escape, tried to um, lead her own life. And, you know, she, she had to leave on a boat. You know, she's escaped on a yacht and then they sent UAE special forces to come and force her back and we haven't heard from her since and now his own wife has fled to the UK and there's an incredible court case going on where we're hearing more details about the absolute horror of this dictatorship but you know Australia has a military base in the UAE we have very close relations with them how many people do we know all work in Dubai you know this is a place that is as bad as Saudi Arabia in terms of freedom for dissidents um uh the, the lack of political expression allowed. And the main focus of that chapter is actually a man you won't have heard of because he's not famous like the others. His name's Ahmed Mansour. He's a father of four. And he's just a human rights defender who 
continued to speak out because he was so bloody brave and he, he knew that if he didn't say it, no one else would. And, you know, they came for him. They came for him in the middle of the night and now he sits in a jail. Um, he's been there for three years. And, yeah, you know, I, I, I still remember the day that Ahmed Mansour was, was taken and we knew about what had happened and the Australian ambassador was, like, tweeting about the International Day of Happiness and how, how great it was to, you know, present this this uh, exhibition together with Dubai at this Day of Happiness um, at the UN in New York. And it's just kind of, it's just, it's insane. You know, how does this, how, how does that go on? Like, talk about um, just being so removed from the reality of the situation, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's actually one of my favourite chapters because we don't hear enough about that country. On And this guy, mm. Ahmed, is a hero. You know, he's yeah. an absolute hero and, and he's sitting there right now in jail. So every time you fly through Dubai, think of Ahmed, you know, because he's not far from that airport. And he's literally sitting there because he tweeted, you know, he tweeted against the government. That's his crime. Yes, well, I think many people would be familiar with Dubai because they would stop over in Dubai or even stay um, for a certain period of time. So it is something that is more um, closer to people's experiences, at least Dubai Airport and then broader um, the city. Uh, You mentioned in that chapter that he has um, been in and out of solitary confinement and the way that um, Princess Latifah described solitary confinement, it sounds like it um, is particularly brutal uh, situation to be in. We've also seen um, an Australian get caught up in Iran, um, which is Kylie Moore Gilbert. And um, of course, she's not as uh, much of a focus in this book. And that's another story. But it it was interesting that it's not just... um, people, civilians of that population, although that is the main, um, you know, focus and the people who are most persecuted and at risk, but there are also a number of foreign nationals who can often get caught up in these uh, conflicts overseas and also be, um, I guess, seen as collateral damage sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the Iranians are horrific and, um, you know, what they're capable of, I can, I really document that in the Syrian chapters, you know, because they're the ones Mm. who propped up President Assad and set their proxies and their militias um, to carry out these horrific crimes on the ground. So, um, yeah, they are not nice guys at all. And, you know, here we see the way, um, you know, the the poor people of Iran are suffering terribly amid the the COVID-19 outbreak. You know, they have a country that's depleted of resources under US sanctions. There's no good healthcare system. They have a terrible regime that doesn't, you know, care about their lives. So once again, the theme is just the fact that the civilians are the ones who are suffering um, and that these regimes get away with a huge amount. And sometimes we criticise them, sometimes we support them, you know, and and our hypocrisy is laid bare to see. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, the there's, there's too much to just talk about. You've got to read the book. But um, thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate the time that you've you've given it because um, you, 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 not many people have read the whole thing yet. It's only just out, but clearly you have. So <laughs> I'm, I'm stoked with uh, the amount of attention you've given it. Oh, well, you're very welcome. It is a quite um, hefty tome and that's wonderful because it means you can dip in and out of the different stories and you pick up um, stories at different points in the book and they are ongoing in some cases. Um, Are are we able to just finish off on Syria? Um, Because I was really interested in Syria and the fact that we had such a huge focus on it from a media perspective at the beginning of the conflict and I was shocked when I read that you said it was, you know, all happening in 20 and we're now in 2020. Um, And we also saw those chemical attacks that certainly did 
affect children a huge amount um, in more recent times and you highlight the plight of a number of brave men and women who have um, really been speaking up and also supporting each other against the um, Assad regime. From your In your mind, having um, followed that conflict in Syria and been close to it and the people involved, where do you think um, things are going to go and h- how can people over here um, voice their opinion and make uh, changes, if possible, to how we deal with Syria? Because we've seen such change in um, policy from the US, for example, um, and their uh, involvement in Syria in recent times. I mean, uh, what's happening right now in Syria is the worst phase of the war. It's the largest humanitarian crisis uh, since it began in 2011. It's happening now in in the north in a province called Idlib where you have, uh, you know, a million civilians um, stuck between uh, terrible jihadis who took over that province. Um, You know, nothing like when the Syrian Syrian revolution broke out and the democratic um, civilian society-led protests, um, you know, they all those people ended up in jail nearly. You know, they were forced to flee. And so um, the guys now controlling that last province, um, you know, they resemble the Assad regime in many ways. People there aren't allowed freedom. So um, those rebels are now fighting Assad as he advances, and they're absolutely trapped, all these civilians. Turkey's not letting them in. And, you know, the rest of the world isn't interested. Uh, they, they turned um, a bit of attention to it two weeks ago when the Syrian refugees were coming up near the Greek border because Turkey was so annoyed that no one was helping them, that they were re- telling Syrian refugees, you know, go, go into Greece. Suddenly the EU paid attention. Um, but, you know, a country like Australia, you know, we, we, we should be taking more refugees from that region. You know, we, we took 11,000 and, um, you know, one of them is featured in the book. This amazing hero, a guy called Dr. Hallard, was one of those people. And, you know, he's now safe in Perth. Um, you know, th- thanks to our refugee program. And you can see, like, the impact it has, just one person's life. But there's all little things we can do. I mean, there's there's so many recently arrived Syrian and Iraqi refugees in Australia that don't get the support they need. You know, it's really hard to just totally start life again from scratch. So particularly Syrians. Um, the, the Syrian refugees who came were from Sunni families, most of them people who'd been in towns that suffered the absolute brunt of the, the bombing, the war, fled for their lives, fled with nothing. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I have a friend in Adelaide who had come from Homs, one of the worst destroyed cities, and he got the visa and his family were, were there, but, you know, he couldn't get a job. You know, the English lessons that we provide for the government, like, they're great, but, you know, they weren't enough for him to learn the language. He couldn't get a job. He felt terribly guilty about not being able to send money back to his family. And so I just put on Facebook, like, who, who do I know in Adelaide? Who could give my maid a job? And, you know, uh, uh, my husband's cousin's husband's friend. <laughs> got this guy a job and it changed his life, you know, absolutely changed his life. A small company in Adelaide took him on and, you know, they hadn't ever worked with a Muslim Syrian refugee. So they received an amazing insight into the life of someone that, you know, they'd never met before. He he managed to, you know, get his foot in the door of Australian society, start learning more English, start earning a wage, he had a reason to, to live, you know, like it was really hard for him. So that's just an example of like what difference you can make, one person or one individual's life. This is the thing. Um, we, we think that it's always someone else's problem, right? But what are you doing? That's what the whole book is about. Mm. What are you actually doing? Apart from, you know, we're frantically recycling to try and ease our guilt, but that's not enough. You know, that doesn't work. We all need to do more, actually. A little bit of self-sacrifice in our own lives um, will go a long way to trying to make the world a better place, I think. Yes. Well, also thinking about others puts your life into perspective and 
not only does it benefit other people, but it benefits yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there, I, there's, um, you know, so, some of the things in the book are really traumatic, but I wouldn't change a thing because um, it makes you a better person and it just show, it makes you realise how lucky you are. At the end of the day, you know, I could always get out of somewhere. People in Gaza mm. are trapped. People in Yemen are trapped. People in Syria are trapped. Whereas, you know, I had an Australian passport. I was in and out. You know, how privileged is that? So, you know, we've all got to use the privilege that we have. Not all of us, but some of us. Um, many of us in this country use it for good. You know, I don't think we do that enough. Mm. Um, so if you just finally, given your own personal involvement and uh, I guess firsthand experience of so many different countries across the world, but particularly the Middle East, how have you as a journalist managed some of the um, challenges and um, I guess there are negatives and benefits to being a foreign correspondent, for example, and an investigative journalist. There are certain strains that it might put on one's um, mental health, but there's also I guess, a number of benefits to that job. How have you managed those um, positives and negatives in your life? Well, like I said, I always just remind myself that I'm actually the lucky one. Um, You know, everyone in my book has has had to go through so much more. So you just always put it in that perspective anytime you might be feeling a little bit, you know, overwhelmed by it or, um, yeah, just, you know, it's really – yeah, it's really full on to to to, to think of of um, all of those places and those people that you leave behind. But um, you just just remind yourself you're lucky. You're the lucky one, and mm. um, so that that's kind of um, my way of dealing with it all is just to um, always put that at the forefront of my mind. That's a really great um, approach to take. Now, if people um, want to find your book, as you said, it is out now. Um, We can't say we didn't know. Dispatches from an age of impunity. And I believe because of the coronavirus pandemic, you've had to cancel your event um, signings for for now at least. Um, So that's obviously makes it more difficult for people to engage and for yourself to get to engage. But I hope people do get a chance to meet you and hear more from you and also read um, these great accounts of brilliant people who you've encountered and um, yeah thank you so much Sophie for sharing so generously some of these stories and also for being such a force for change. Thanks Amy I really appreciate the time you gave it. Cheers. My pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with adjunct professor Bill Botel. Bill is based at UNSW and is a public health advocate and expert. He was part of the team under the Hawke government who devised the plan to combat the AIDS HIV epidemic in Australia in the 1980s. We spoke about the novel coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19, both in Australia and what's happening globally. We talk about what governments, organisations and individuals need to do to stop and contain the spread of coronavirus in society. So I welcome Bill now and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Now, let's uh, first up, 
There's so much to talk about, but we should um, talk first about the fact that Australia's cases of coronavirus, the positive cases that we have seen, have been increasing quite rapidly now on a day-to-day basis. We are um, in at around 350 positive cases at the moment, with the federal government expecting there to be 1,000 by the end of this week. Um, there has been criticism around the modelling, the lack of um, transparent modelling with this nation um, being up front about how many people might be affected by the coronavirus, with other nations around the world being far more transparent in what modelling they're using and therefore based their decisions on. First up, do you think that this um, modelling issue is important and does, uh, I guess, establish trust or, in another sense, if we withhold it, undermine trust? Well, of course it should be transparent. It should have been transparent from the end of December. The Australian government has clearly developed a policy that has allowed this thing to get to the situation where we are now facing an exponential growth rate in the spread of coronavirus. There were, these things were held in secret. The meetings were held in secret. The modelling was held in secret. All of these things have been under lock and key. The consequences of that foolish policy making over January, February, we are now seeing. This was not the approach taken in countries that learnt the lesson from China, particularly Taiwan, Korea, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, who mobilised their populations very early on when they saw the threat to take all necessary steps that have resulted in the uh, impact of the virus being lessened. Uh, We are taking the astonishingly wrong-headed approach that the Italians and the French and the Americans until four and five weeks ago thought, as was here, that this was a good idea to let it rip Now we are facing the consequences of that. The world economy is collapsing. The European economy is collapsing. The President of France calls it like a declaration of war. Even in the last 24 hours, America now, which has reversed course totally, have taken swift and bold action, or the only action we can take, to make sure that you and me and our families and our friends and our loved ones and our workplace, that we protect ourselves from on this thing as as best we can. I, I'm astonished that the Australian government could blithely say here, it can be 300 today and 1,000 at the end of the week. Last Monday, seven days ago, so the day before yesterday, uh, a week ago in Denmark, they had 57 cases. And whatever the Danish was, for she'll be right, nothing to see here. On Wednesday, they had 500. On uh, 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 then they had six hundred the next day and over a thousand now in a week. Yes, and we're seeing that that real uh, steep curve that is obviously in an upward trajectory starts to really um, go rapidly when we see the advent of community transmission, which has yeah. happened in the last few days in Australia. That's right. This was all highly. Nothing about this is unknown to science mm. or unpredictable. It's not an act of God. It was completely clear to everybody who understands epidemiology or virology and who learnt the lessons from the AIDS response in the 80s in Australia uh, that you can intervene if you take it calmly and collectedly and do the right things based on fact and evidence, you you can get in control of the virus rather than the virus in control of you. 
We have adopted a policy called, uh, based on so-called uh, herd immunity, which is charitably uh, not right uh, and a lot worse than that, but it's untried, untested. And this policy, this has formed the basis of, of the policy in Australia, America and the US, uh, uh, sorry, UK. Uh, in the last 24 hours, both Trump and Johnson have collapsed totally and sane people have taken control of the response. It may be too late to avert the worst. Now, that's got to happen here. I cannot put it to you and your listeners strongly enough that the policies now being adopted in, in, in extremis in Europe and America are the right policies. No meetings. Stay home. Isolate yourself as best you can and limit your contacts. Really, that's what that means. You can't isolate yourself totally, but limit the contacts. It should be no schools, no big meetings, and let's just do what we can now to make sure that that prediction complacently and seemingly it's okay, given by the authorities that are allegedly in control of this, seem to accept. Well, I don't accept it. I don't think your listeners should accept it. I think they should do what they can. We've got to say that people like... I have a good feeling, I hope, that uh, Premier of Victoria and his uh, people understand the gravity of the situation. I think increasingly uh, uh, properly informed health officials are and they realise that we have embarked on a course that was wrong and not based on scientific evidence and drawing conclusions from facts. Yes, and you're not the only person uh, voicing these opinions. These are all echoed by a number of uh, academics, epidemiologists, virologists, infectious disease physicians, uh, people, doctors working in ICUs. Who were not involved in any way in the policy making Mm. that was secretly engaged in by a very small group of people who chose to not ask the people who knew what they were talking about and have a track record in Australia, but they consulted who knows what. Who knows who? I have a good idea, but they uh, determined a policy. Look, you might have an argument. They might have an argument for doing it in academic sense, but they should have done us the courtesy of explaining they were overturning 50 years of Australian public health policy and approach to these things, and they had embarked on a radical, untested, hopeful new course that was only known to them. They did not. The Minister for Health never got up in the Parliament or anywhere else and said, this is the new approach. The Prime Minister never said that. It was done behind closed doors. You've still... Look, I, I, I know that this... Uh, I know the way I do the radio interviews sound calm and collected, so forgive me if I start to sound a little bit uh, agitated on this. I asked the Minister for Aged Care last night on Q&A, well, you're the Minister, please tell us today how many test kits there are in Australia... You know that answer because you're privy to these uh, secret information. He refused to answer. Last Friday, the uh, chief medical officer, uh, uh, Murphy, wrote to the doctors and said, in some areas of Australia, some regions, there are no test kits. And I said, well, please tell us where they are. How many do you have? What regions? Which regions of Victoria may not have these things? I don't wish to so apprehension But if you don't know that answer, how can you then recommend, well, everybody should get tested or nobody should get tested? Now, 
this is beyond. This is this is not business as usual. These are questions of life and death. Yes, they are. And the government seems to have embarked on a policy that would, by not advocating in time social distancing, by allowing the schools to stay open, by the Prime Minister on Friday saying, I'm off to the football and nothing to see here, and it's, by the way, it's meetings of uh, 500 and above, go for it. Well, well let... the virus didn't get the message. Mm. <laughs> that they were taking a weekend off. Yeah, the virus said, mm. oh, that's good. Oh, look, uh, excuse me, you know, uh, I'll just uh, put my feet up and relax. I, I've heard today there's still some, <laughs> some uh, tangentially, but the idea that the, somehow the Tokyo Olympics should go ahead. Well, if the Tokyo Olympics were next week, they wouldn't go ahead, A, because nobody could travel there. But the idea that we're, we're locked on a course and the, vi- you know, the virus doesn't get the memo, Yes. Now, the President of France would today gave an extremely grave address. France is shut down. He wishes, monumentally wishes, that four to five to eight weeks ago, France had taken these decisions, and they didn't. If you ring up anybody in Italy, they wish they'd taken these decisions, but they didn't. If you rang up the chief medical officer in Lombardy in northern Italy for, and said to him, what do you think we should do now in Australia? He would say, for goodness sake, everything that does. The only trouble is you can't speak to the chief medical officer of Lombardy because he died last Thursday. Now, yeah. we have to get real. The people of Australia have to take matters into their own hands to do the right thing by experts that are trustable and believable and have their interests at heart, who've not embarked on, at best, a uh, foolish and untested policy of allowing this thing to spread widely and see what happens, but to do the thing today that they must do to, to, uh, to uh, do the best by themselves and by our country. Um, and we must demand. Uh, we must. We must demand of the government to change course. I don't know if it will. And if they won't, well, we've got to look to the state governments, the government of Victoria, people like Premier Andrews. We've got to look to the, uh, you know, the state, the, the local councils. They have a tremendous role to play in this. They've never been advised or involved of what to do, but they're the people in very close contact with their communities. Mm. We have to look after people who are terrified and now and don't know what's happening. Uh, we can't allow isolation to mean social isolation. We must be kind and loving to the people who are most vulnerable. We must ask the police in a caring and sharing sort of way to up their presence at supermarkets and at hospitals to protect and uh, those workers, as the Premier said yesterday. And we've got to, we, we've got to come together in a calm way to minimise the effect of what's coming. There are people today who woke up in Melbourne whose businesses have collapsed. They And the workers, the business owners, they don't know where they're going to get their paycheck. They don't know where they're going to make the lease payment on their restaurant. They, 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 there are people... Think of all the people who could be affected by what's coming in the airline industry and with Virgin and Qantas and everything that hangs off that. That's not next week's problem. That's today. 
Tuesday. Now, what is the government of Australia doing about it? In Germany, people are getting basically their wages put into their uh, continually, whatever the wages were through the banks they're putting them in. They're giving loans for anything to business, anytime. You tell us, here it is. You know, like they're freezing the economy, uh, they're suspending mortgage repayments, and they're saying, well, you owe us the tax, but you don't have to pay it for six months. Now, their decision, they're things that ought to have been ta- contemplated last week. Mm. They weren't. They should be done this week, today. Now, uh, uh, these are things, there has been no coherent, organised planning at the top. And here we are. Well, can I talk I'm a little... I'm not happy. No, I can tell. And neither have I been because I've been following uh, all of these medical professionals and scientists on Twitter for weeks now, watching especially the American situation where they could not test and yet doctors at the front line knew that coronavirus was widespread in the community, but they could not actually get access to these tests. Um, In terms of the herd immunity theory, just for people to understand the seriousness of this theory and why it does not apply in our situation, um, it has been used as a reason why schools should be kept open um, and there are very much flaws in this argument that, of course, children supposedly will have a milder illness. Uh, We don't want them to be around their parents or their grandparents, um, so we'll keep them in school. Maybe they'll get the virus and we'll be protecting healthcare workers, we'll be protecting grandparents. But there's many issues with this, including, number one, there is no vaccine, and number two, these children do go home. Um, In your opinion, (laughs) with herd immunity... I mean, so many people, uh, academics and scientists, have said this would be a a catastrophe. Amy, we are embarking on a radical scientific experiment with the Australian people as subjects. I'm not an epidemiologist or scientist, right? So it's a very interesting argument and there are things on both sides. I don't know. But I put it to you that if I turned up at your place with a vial of an unknown substance and said, and flung it around over your family and all the rest of it and said, look, um, I found this thing on the internet. Um, it's a bit toxic, but let's see what happens. I mean, you would take me off to, you would take me off in a straitjacket. I mean, it's all very interesting, but really? You just say, the point is, as far as I understand, this thing is a coronavirus. There is no immunity in the world for it. There is no immunity, not like influenza where people, you know, can be vaccinated and so on. So it's, there is no immunity. It's a coronavirus like the cold virus. And as we all know, you can get the cold twice and three or four times in a year if you're unlucky. You know, the immunity lasts for a certain point and then it goes away. There is some evidence that people who have thrown off coronavirus infection have acquired it again. That is enough to suggest to me that the idea of blithely accepting, as the, as the Deputy Chief Medical Officer of the Commonwealth came out yesterday and said, well, our modelling, now they've been shamed into starting to talk about their modelling, uh, is between 20 and 70% would be infected, I can't help thinking, I said, well, 20% of 26 million is 5.2 million, right? Uh, be infected, uh, so all getting colds and runny noses and stills and so on like that. Not, not you know, there, <laughs> there are 2,000 ICU beds in all of Australia. So 
somebody who comes out and just says, as if it's the most easy thing in the world to grasp, 20%, 5.2 million, and we know that of the death rate is somewhere between 3 and 4 and 5%. Well, you do the maths. 5% of 5.2 million is a rather large figure. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I'm stunned. I'm absolutely stunned into, or not quite silence, the reverse of it, but I, <laughs> I, I, cannot, I, I feel like I've slipped into some sort of alternate reality, you know, taking the blue pill or the red pill and off with Gauno Reeves down the matrix. I can't believe we're hearing it and that people are saying, well, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> From the- I, I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm almost rendered speechless. And people, <laughs> yes. really, you shouldn't be asking me. Get, get, uh, get um, uh, Greg Hunt on the phone or Brendan Murphy or Scott Morrison or the Premier of Victoria and say, do you agree with this? Have you have signed off on this? Has somebody said something that I've missed? Well- and that your belief is that this should run... Thing? I said mm. last night to Mr Colbeck, I said, uh, have you not looked at the situation in Europe? Have you not looked at where it worked and successfully repelled and repulsed in Taiwan, which has been fantastic? Have you not drawn those lessons? Can you not see it? And if, and if you believe that this is the right thing to do, which presumably they do, have you not exposed that to the criticism and analysis of experts and other people and say, well, what do you think about this? Let's put it out there and have an argument in January and say we should do this, not that. I'm perfectly open to having those arguments, but to keep it secret and then to come out and say the consequences of our failed policies are between 20 and 70% people being infected, I am, I am rendered utterly aghast. And people, people should ask the questions of Greg Hunt. I assume he's in his, in his electorate office today. Well, I'd go around and knock on the door and say... Greg, sorry to disturb you, out shaking hands, uh, which was obviously all right the other day, shake his hand and say, pal, could you just tell me if this is so? Or is Bill Botel and all the people who now are concerned about this, are they armchair critics? Don't know what they're talking about. Mm. And if you say that, say, well, I'm perfectly prepared to believe Bill Botel's off his rocker, but could you just explain to me the policy implications of what you're presiding over? And, and the, not the policy implications, the implications for the people who are listening to this program. Yes, exactly. Well, um, certainly we have seen doctors, prominent doctors like Dr. Norman Swan, who has become almost a a default spokesperson uh, about this virus from a medical standpoint. He has been out there trying to uh, correct misinformation. Uh, He has done a wonderful job. Yes, he has, hasn't he? Um, Some of that misinformation around whether people who are asymptomatic but are actually positive for the coronavirus can transmit the virus, uh, depending on, on, of course, viral load and the point well, at which well, they ask, were infected. Ask, ask, ask Richard Wilkins. Mm, exactly. He was with Tom Hanks last weekend in Sydney, as was a friend of mine. That's why I'm in, in uh, isolation in my apartment <laughs> uh, as I speak to you. Yeah. Richard Wilkins, according to his, uh, what he said in the paper, uh, when he heard that Tom Hanks had been uh, diagnosed positive, he went and, uh, and got a test, which is puzzles me because that's not the guidelines Mm. at the moment but anyway he got tested and he was diagnosed with coronavirus and then he said i'm asymptomatic 
Now, part of the recommendations, which I think are wrong, is that asymptomatic people should not be tested. I thought there was some science validity in it, but I look at Richard Wilkins' case, that's clearly not so, and it's certainly not the approach taken in Taiwan and Korea, where they've been testing asymptomatic people. In, in Korea, it's been 10,000 a day. And yes. they understand it, and it's been part of the reason that they brought this down. They found a lot of asymptomatic young people. Particularly so, in the age group of their 20s um, has been yes. a big there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, lies and disinformation that's only old people mainly mainly to the comfort of young people who haven't got anything and say well that's all right you know well I'm 67 and when somebody said that to me the other day and said this was a revelation I said oh that's really good <laughs> but anyway uh, if you don't have truth and honesty and openness and you don't have the right people of the caliber of Norman Swan. Uh, out there telling the truth without any polit fear of political repercussion or as politicians, if you don't have that, what do you have? You have the lies and disinformation that you can pick up any time on the internet. Exactly. Well, that's the choice. Yep. Fear, and panic and confusion caused by lies and disinformation or telling the truth. This guy, the, the people, they have hidden this. They have done nothing. They'd never stockpile test kits. They don't stop emergency equipment. They never took out a, a public information campaign when there was time to uh, educate the Australian people about what's going on. And they kept it all behind lock and key. Well, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. It's not good enough for me. I've been around a long time, but it's certainly not good enough for, to protect the interests and the health of the people who are listening to you and the people of Victoria. I think also from your perspective, given that you have the benefit of hindsight and you have also dealt with a previous and very severe public health crisis, which mm. was the AIDS HIV pandemic in Australia in the 80s, mm. given you've had that first-hand experience with the Hawke government and that it was also bipartisan, um, and I'm yeah. sure there were many other features that made it a success, looking back on that and the fact that we did actually learn lessons and do things well and also... Um, I'm sure correct mistakes that were made if there were them. What are you thinking about those lessons that we had made, that institutional memory well, we should have had, and um, how we're behaving well, in comparison? All the people who were there, all the people who were there, and who saw what worked then, the last time a virus attacked our country, uh, thought complacently that these policies, was, these principles were so well established that no future government faced with the problem would do anything other than implement that response based on the policies that worked in, in the days of HIV and AIDS. Presided over politically, I have to say, by two great uh, Victorians, Bob Hawke and Andrew Peacock, who said, we will convene the parliament, we'll get a multi-partisan working committee, uh, we'll get the experts in, we'll get all the people who are involved and associated with this, uh, who are most at risk of HIV infection, appoint the right experts, fund them for anything they need, and then importantly as politicians, because half the country hated Bob Hawke and half the country hated Andrew Peacock, we'll get off the stage. And, no, and we depoliticised it. We had no politicians. Why on earth would anybody, really, at this stage of it, think there is no role for politicians? There's no role for Mr Morrison publicly. There's no role for Greg Hunt publicly. But where, what do they do? They go on television, they say one thing, they do another, somebody has an argument, then they correct it. 
then it's all great. You know, as if as if we're fighting an election campaign. I've never seen anything so preposterous in my life. But that was how we did it then. Mm. But the, but for whatever reason, this government said no. We were not going to do that. It. We're not going to see what worked in Australia. We're not going to see what worked in Korea. Not going to see what worked in Taiwan. I know what we'll do. We'll go to some UK academic and Professor Chris Whitty, the, the medical officer of the United Kingdom, who's under their sway, and we'll adopt a radical and bold and interesting alternative to this and see what happens. But we won't tell anybody. We won't make a statement about it. This is not. We'll overthrow the principles that worked in Australia, and we'll adopt something that's completely, in my view, crackpot. Uh, and we're going to do that. But why would we tell you? You're just the taxpayers and the voters. Well, those taxpayers and voters are now the subjects of a very odd, threatening, wrong scientific experiment to see how far and wide this thing can spread. Yep. It's not good enough. Just closing it's out... It's not good enough. It's wrong. It's wrong. And mm. it should be overthrown. And the people of Australia should just say, look, get off the stage... We'll t give us the tools, give us the information, and we'll do the job because you manifestly cannot do it. Yeah, and we have seen organisations move before the government already with some universities taking action, yes, some schools taking action. Mm. But, but this, is, this is like do-it-yourself epidemiology. Yeah, and this I think that's why some, some people have turned to Twitter for actual advice from epidemiologists um, because th that is where they're giving that advice um, and also, of course, through the media. Um, just to close out this discussion, yeah. I just want to touch on individuals because, as you've mentioned, there are um, a range of people in society who, of course, understand that um, there is a, a great proportion of the community who will have uh, the virus and that most of them will have mild symptoms, but that is not yes. comfort to the people who are at risk, and they yes. include elderly people, people with autoimmune conditions, well, of course, people yeah. with lung conditions. Mm. Uh, there's so many different um, people at risk, not just in an elderly category, category but, of course, uh, young Look, and old. It's very important to understand this. Based on the Chinese thing and the 100-and-something thousand cases are in the world, 80 or 80% have mild symptoms. Yeah. As, as, as we know, right, you can get a coronavirus and cold and so It comes and goes. <clears throat> and and if you're robust or young or doing anything like that, or you can shake it off, and that's that's the overwhelming thing. They recover. But I'm not... That's fine. I'm not actually concerned about the people who recover. I'm concerned about, as you said, the people who are vulnerable and likely for all sorts of reasons to acquire it. Yes. That's a big enough number. Mm. So, so like you can, you can, um, we can define ourselves out of it and say, well, I've got an eight and ten chance based on the Chinese figures of getting away. But I'm a more, far more concerned about the twenty percent who 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 go on to develop really bad conditions, and I'm very concerned, frankly, about the five percent of the people who die, or based on the figures we have today. Now, it might I don't know who can predict the future. But certainly the first obligation of the people who run this country is to do everything to stop that number going up and finding out where it lands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is known as the protection of public health. Indeed. And if we're enrolled in an experiment by these people 
to find out if some other approach works. Well, I, for one, would like to have known about it sometime at the end of December or beginning of January. Yeah. We didn't. Mm-mm. And some people have said that, uh, and certainly public health officials at the UN uh, World Health Organization level said that testing is important, but also yes. that government responses, it is a good thing for it to look like an overreaction because it means that you are actually um, being ahead of the curve yes. and being uh, ahead of the virus, essentially. Well, remember with China, I, I, I think a very common thing was, oh my goodness, China's over, you know, my, you can't imagine that happening in Melbourne, mm. right? Well, they were right. I mean, there, there are a lot of things you can have a, in principle, discussion about China if you want. There's a lot of chaos and silliness and all the rest of it. But in the end, the principle was right. Act swiftly and firmly at the thing. And it got out of control in one province and they brought it under control. And the people who learnt that lesson when it was out of con- seemingly out of control in China and there were these massive containment exercises were the people in Korea Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore, who had experience of SARS and MERS. But they said, my goodness, we can't allow that to happen here. We must do all the things we can to bring that under under control before it becomes a disaster. And they did it. And it, not in the same way as China, but they learnt they, the time they got from China, the lessons they learnt, and they did it all. And, it, and on the figures and the facts, it's worked. We could have gone down that path. The other day, the Prime Minister said, Australians being Australians, you know, we'll get all through this. Well, Australians shouldn't be Australians. Australians should be like Taiwanese. <laughs> you know? I just... Catchy, catchy slogans instead of proper policy at this stage... Yeah. And, um, I'm in the matrix. <laughs> I know. It, it does feel like that when you see uh, the advice from uh, doctors and, and other scientists that does keep conflicting with some of the messaging we're getting. Um, just to put mm. things in perspective okay. from South Korea, my uh, best friend who I you know, met from university, lives in South Korea. She's been Mm -hmm. self-isolating for six weeks now, working from home that entire time, has only gone to walk out in a park very far away from each other, all wearing masks, and uh, no one has been out to do what they would like to do, but they're all accepting that for a short period of time or a medium-term period of time that certain sacrifices need to be made for everyone's benefit. Correct. And and, and, uh, the biggest sacrifice you can make is your life. And compared to that, you have to. If we've got to not go to AFL games, not send the kids to school, uh, all that stuff. Well, that's too bad, really, isn't it? Don't you think? That's a sensible trade-off to me. Probably do know what you're doing, and it's done in a calm and sensible sort of way. That's just how it is. Yeah. And and we have to look after each other and have so and solidarity for the people who are scared and unhappy. It's not the end of the world. It's not like a movie. You know, a lot of people think, oh, my God, a virus is coming. And it's not. It's not. It's completely rationally able to be handled. We don't need to panic. We're not facing the destruction of our way of life and the rest of it. But believe me, four weeks ago, if you'd gone around Europe, they would have been calmly, complacently saying, nothing much to see here, we'll handle it when we get around to it. Mm. Well, they bitterly regret that today. Yes, And I don't want us to bitterly regret that and 
two, one week and three weeks to four weeks' time. The people who are handling this, uh, in my view, should be deemed by the Australian people to be completely irrelevant. They are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Their assumptions are, as they get extracted out of them, hour by hour and day by day, their assumptions are wrong, the direction of policy is wrong, and people in the states and at local government level and at community level have got to start doing it. I'm not really more... Mm. Personally, I'm no longer more interested in arguing this question with with these people. I look to our councils and our uh, churches and our great organisations and uh, the, the premiers and all those people to come together now to do the right thing. And for those listening who are in the community and are individuals, what should they do then if we need to start to take they charge should, of the situation? Well, they should talk to their, you know, their community groups, their businesses, their workers, their employers, you know, everybody all around their universities and schools and say, my goodness, we have a problem. We're not being led well, but let's see, we've got the function. What can we all do collectively to figure this out? About, and, you know, the, figure out the finances, figure out the support, figure out the support. Uh, the one interesting thing is we have Twitter and social media and Skype and all that sort of thing. So even if you go and have to go and stay home for a while, mostly you're not going to be um, isolated, at least in connection terms. So let's build on all of that. Uh, let's be very compassionate and supportive of the people who are facing economic hardship as well and organise ourselves from the grassroots up. And if we do that and we, we rely on our friends and our connections and our community groups and the people at work and all those sort of characters, you know, all that, and uh, look to local level for leadership and to the uh, Premier and uh, to the state government, I'm sure we can get through it. It's a pity we've come to this, but we have, and now we must act quickly, very quickly. Yep. Thank you so much, Bill. It's uh, been really, really valuable to hear from you today. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.